broadcasting from the kitchen. Uh, this is the Campus Church Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Darrell. This is episode 64, Black Lives Matter, J.D. Greer versus Sam Harris. So bearing precious seed in his hand, hoping and hope that he might see it grow. Welcome, everybody, to the Campus Church Podcast, a podcast designed to encourage and equip you in the work of evangelism. And I am broadcasting from a friend's kitchen in Moscow, Idaho, uh, where I'll be at least for the next week. I hope to swing down to California and then out east uh, during July. But my travel plans keep changing as several things arise. Uh, But thinking of things arising, we do have the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network annual conference October 1st through the 3rd in Nashville, Tennessee. And it's going to be fantastic. You can go to the fightlifefeast.com or crosspolitik.com to learn more about it. And if you become a club member by September the 1st, you will get a 50% off, I believe it is, from the conference. So I think it's normally $200. You'll be able to register for $100. And we got a uh, quite a lineup. And the thing I actually, uh, probably more than anything else I'm looking forward to is uh, beer and uh, psalms on Thursday night, I believe it is, which is kind of a kickoff to the event, which is uh, the singing of psalms last year at the Grace Agenda was one of my favorite things. And there's just a bunch of us gathered in a uh, basement singing uh, psalms. And I think we maybe did a hymn or two, but they were at least psalm oriented. And then the other thing to do, and I'm finally figuring out that I have it broken. Uh, thank you for those of you who've emailed me to let me know that uh, the Campus Reach Podcast is not working on the app, and that is completely my fault in the way that I have been uploading it or not uploading it properly, and uh, Gabe gave me a crash course on how to get it uploaded, so hopefully starting tonight I will do it right, and then I'll start going back and adding the old podcast. And so what I want to talk about tonight, today, tonight, uh, is uh, J.D. Greer versus Sam Harris and Black Lives Matter. Obviously, if you're paying any attention to what's going on in the news, uh, America uh, seems to be burning uh, quite literally, and then also, I guess, metaphorically as well, there seems to be uh, some real chaos on the horizon. And the question becomes, how do we go about addressing it, especially as Christians, where there are a myriad of things that we want to do, preach the gospel to people, win people to Jesus, um, and yet also seek the truth. And even as I said that, and yet also uh, as if those things aren't juxtaposed to one another. But that's how we often see it. And uh, I came across a video this week of J.D. Greer, which you may have seen. He's the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And he was, it seemed to be kind of a state of the union. I'm not a Southern Baptist, so I'm not totally privy uh, to what they're doing. But it seemed to be kind of like a state of the union address. Like, here's where we are. And I saw like a two-minute clip where he addressed Black Lives Matter in it. So I went back, watched the whole thing, at least 90%. I didn't finish the last little bit of it. Um, And it was actually better than uh, the snippet I saw. And so when I was structuring this thing, I I was firing on all cylinders and ready to blast JD. And I think he actually did a better job than I originally heard in the quote. But I still think what he did there was completely insufficient uh, for what needs to be done and how to properly address the issue. But I do think that what he laid out there is one of the key factors that's going on in our culture that whether we like it or not, we have to communicate to. So, for example, um, 
Ben Shapiro often says, facts don't care about your feelings. And the reality of it is, uh, their feelings don't care about our facts. And so what do, what do you do when a bunch of people could care less about your facts and they have a bunch of feelings and they're willing to run roughshod and literally tear down statues or cut off their uh, male members because they feel a certain way, despite all facts to the contrary. Uh, They feel a certain way, and they're going to run with it. Um, And there's a certain level in which there is no reasoning with those individuals. And I do, so I do think there is a proper component of, as we're ministering to people and bringing truth to people, is a strand of empathy. Empathy has won the culture. I agree that it is a horrendous ethic. I b- believe it is destructive of the culture. It's destructive of the truth. And as the culture accepts it more, it's ultimately going to be destructive of the gospel. Uh, even within the church, I think it will be kind of a, a cause for apostasy, uh, a lack of empathy. Uh, but nonetheless, we are, have to communicate to people who buy into that. So part of our responsibility as Christians is is to, in some sense, enter into that and communicate with them. And that's what JD is, to some extent, seeking to highlight, that there are African-American people uh, here in the United States that genuinely feel like the system's against them. Uh, real or perceived right now, uh, the system is against them. And so they kind of rage against the machine. Here, here I am in the system. I've been here, you know, our people have been here for 400 years. Here's what's been going on. It doesn't seem to be stopping. And we're angry. And if you're, uh, especially if you're a young man growing up in a in poverty and everything else and kind of embracing nihilism and, uh, you know, you, you flip on the uh, internet and you see people living luxurious lives and everything else. And here you are uh, struggling along. Uh, you don't feel loved. You have no father present, you have a lot of things going wrong, and then you see a guy with, uh, who looks like you with a knee in his back uh, and end up dying after nine minutes of a knee in his back. Uh, the, the broader narrative of facts at that point are somewhat irrelevant. So even when I think of myself and I w- watch any event dealing with Waco or dealing with Ruby Ridge and even, uh, and for some reason, uh, I'm not as like triggered over uh, police killing a white man. Um, and the stats play out that, you know, twice as many white men are killed each year by the police. And even when I see a video about it, it, it for some reason, doesn't irk me the same way as say, seeing the FBI, the ATF, uh, for some reason, those, when those men are killing somebody, uh, it, it somehow is a, a greater trigger for me. So I, I do think there is some capacity where we as Christians, we can enter into that and uh, try to enter into their shoes. And I think if I had a black man's experience in America going back 400, 450 years, um, that there would be an underlying anger and distrust. I, I think if I'm completely honest with myself, I'd probably have those sorts of feelings and everything else. So I'm game for completely listening uh, to people and hearing them out and where they're coming from. Uh, and, and so I, I do think that's important. But but the thing where kind of ticked me off with JD, there are two things that he actually said that I think really ends up uh, kind of screwing the pooch a bit. And it's this. Uh, f- first of all, early on in his talk, he ends up defining the gospel this way. You know, for two years now, gospel has been our theme, gospel above all. Uh, by the way, I, I know that the word gospel has gotten to be so common in some circles that it's become stripped of its it's rich meaning. Uh, you know, the historian and theologian John, uh, John Henry Cardinal Newman said that the problem with creeds 
in the church is that when the church decides something is important and they put it in a creed, all the, the heretics figure out a way to smuggle their, their old heresies under the new words of the creed. So he said you have to, you have to come up with a new creed to correct the ways people have perverted the old creed. Well, in some ways the word gospel is like that. Everybody would say, oh, I'm gospel-centered. But um, it's important that we need to be absolutely clear on what we mean by, by that. Uh, Paul said that the gospel was an issue of first importance. First importance means that there were other things that were also important, but this one for Paul was of first importance. In one place uh, in uh, his letter to the Corinthians, he said that he was determined to do nothing but Christ and him crucified, uh, which, you know, scholars point out is, is kind of a weird thing to say because he talked about so many other things. He just meant that in everything he talked about, nothing came close to the centrality or the emphasis he gave on Christ crucified for our sins and raised for our justification. So we've got to be clear on it. What exactly do we mean when we say gospel? Of course, a lot could be said about the kingship and the authority of Jesus, the new creation, the radically new way of living. But the key word in all the gospel is the word, in all in gospel is the word substitution. Uh, at our church, the Summit Church, we say that you can summarize the gospel in four words. Jesus in my place. Jesus took my place. Jesus went to the cross not merely to die for us, but to die instead of us. He took your burden of sin so that you and I can put on his mantle of righteousness. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus lived the life we were supposed to live, died the death we were condemned to die. So that's one of those frustrating, no offense to my Baptist friends, Baptist presentations of the gospel that seems to cut off the resurrection. Even though he does mention there he was raised for our justification, the whole emphasis is upon the death. And he goes, yes, we can talk about his kingship, we can talk about uh, his coming, we can talk about all these things. But uh, for them at Summit Church, the, the gospel is Jesus in my place. Now, there. In a, in, a, in a sense, yes, but I just feel like his presentation uh, was insufficient there, that uh, the, the, the nature of Christ's ascension and resurrection and the nature of the fulfillment of the Old Testament is very much central to the idea that Jesus Christ is king, and that was accomplished through his death, burial, and his resurrection. And so obviously atonement theology and substitutionary nature of Christ's atonement is part and parcel with it, and obviously, and J.D. does mention raised for our justification, uh, but the Christian gospel uh, is... The, the, the bigger picture, including the death, the burial, and resurrection. If you read through the book of Acts, just look at how much they emphasize uh, the resurrection of Jesus over even his death. Uh, his death is, uh, it's not passed over in the book of Acts, but the emphasis throughout the book of Acts is his resurrection. And so Jesus clearly did die for our sins, but even as Paul says, uh, he was raised for our justification. And the rest of the uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is teasing out the implications of of that resurrection, and so you, you you just can't stop it at the death, and kind of kind of have the resurrection as a tag on. Um, but that's a little bit secondary because where where it ties in, and it's kind of funny that JD starts off this way. Is it ties in because JD's going to end up making a comment about Black Lives Matter, and he's like, "Of course, Black Lives Matter, and we must say Black Lives Matter. Why? Because it's a gospel issue. Now, if the gospel is Jesus in our place, I, I'm a little bit at a loss of how." He's going to tie this into the idea of Black Lives Matter is a gospel issue, and especially without defining Black Lives Matter and everything else, because the way he lays it out, nobody would disagree with him. Every single Christian on the planet would agree. Uh, hopefully, <laughs> everybody who is a, uh, uh, I would say, a born again, true believing Christian is that uh, you know, no matter 
what tribe, tongue, or nation someone's from, they're an image bearer of God. So every African American is an image bearer of God. Every Asian American, every white American, you know, you go to Africa, you go to Asia, you go to the Middle East, everybody is an image bearer of God. And so I don't know any Christian that would disagree with that basic thrust. But obviously, in our climate, uh, the idea of Black Lives Matter isn't just whether or not black people bear the image of God. Um, and so what I want to do here is I'm going to pull a few things from the Black Lives Matter website, which, uh, you know, and even JD, to, to his credit, he does say he wants to distance himself from the Black Lives Matter website, but he says that these people hijacked it. No, these people are the founders. These aren't people who hijacked it. And even its founders would admit that they're Marxists and everything else. But what's what's the root of Black Lives Matter. Um, the very root of it is this. It says in 2013, three radical black organizers, Alicia Garza, Patrice Couliers, and Opal Tometi, created a black-centered political will and movement building project called Black Lives Matter. It was in response to the acquittal of Trayvon Martin's murderer, George Zimmerman. And in another interview, I can't remember which woman it was, I believe it was Patrice Coolers, um, and she said that Trayvon was murdered by a white passing man. So George Zimmerman is, uh, I believe, Jewish and Hispanic, and he was white passing. So it was still kind of a white on black crime, and because, you know, George Zimmerman was able to pass as a white person, despite at times his Hispanicness could include him as a person of color, that goes on to say, Black Lives Matter is an ideological and political intervention in a world where black lives are systematically and intentionally targeted for demise. So when you talk about systemic racism and systematic racism and all that sort of stuff, uh, do you really believe that right now in our culture, in our world, that there is a uh, systematically and intentionally targeted for demise is the African-American? Uh, we'd have to look at some pretty serious data to get there. Then it goes on to say, it is an affirmation of black folks' humanity, our contribution to this society, and our resilience in the face of deadly oppression. So, you know, that part, there's a certain level I would have no qualms signing off on. And then it goes on to say, in 2014, Mike Brown was murdered by Ferguson police officer Darren Wilson. Well, he wasn't. Uh, Mike Brown uh, sought to uh, assault Darren Wilson in the car, struck him in the head, and he was shot in the car. The whole hands up, don't shoot, Ferguson burning, all of that is based upon a lie. So it's clear that we need to have truth as being a central element to this discussion, which is going to include facts. And it's going to include what really happened um, in the Brown case and uh, with Darren Wilson, what really happened there. But anyway, the the Black Lives Matter goes on to say this. Black Lives Matter began as a call to – as a call to action in response to state-sanctioned violence and anti-black racism. Our intention from the very beginning was to connect black people from all over the world who have shared desire for justice – to act together in their communities. The impetus for that commitment was, and still is, the rampant and deliberate violence inflicted on us by the state. In search of justice for Mike Brown and all those who have been torn apart by straight-sanctioned violence and anti-black racism. So if you accept their premises here, you can see why the whole defund the police phenomena, that it's just an outworking of Black Lives Matter's principles, and the, and also the obviously the whole system needs to be overturned. If if the very nature of the current system is state-sanctioned murder and killing, basically think of uh, you know Hitler's Germany is basically a little bit of the picture you want to get. So it, it you know, JD did not define Black Lives Matter there, but if you go ahead and define it as these women defined it and where its origins are from, if we're playing the let's bring things back to their origins and the systemic origins and the beliefs of every statue that needs to come down and the Confederate flag and stuff like that, why aren't we going to do that with Black Lives Matter? So if we're going to play this game of bringing things back to their historical roots and why they're there and what they're teaching and what they're saying, if we're going to play that game, 
as Christians, there is no sense in which we should affirm, and I don't think we should in our current climate, Black Lives Matter, um, uh, because the very nature of it, uh, I would say, is ultimately deconstructive of the gospel, because even, I think two of the women are queer, and they spend a lot of time on the whole trans ethic and everything else, just because the, the very nature of what they want to do is um, all these things, cisgender and marriage and sexuality, all these things are part of a systemic oppression of all other people. And so there, there's a lot of other issues that end up getting uh, tied in, but I, I think the nature of Black Lives Matter and understanding who they are are, are important. And then we have this where J.D. Greer uh, addresses Black Lives Matter. Southern Baptists, we need to, to say it clearly as a gospel issue. Black lives matter. Uh, of course black lives matter. Our, our black brothers and sisters are made in the image of God. Black lives matter because Jesus died for them. Black lives are a beautiful part of God's creation and they make up an essential and beautiful part of his body. And we would be poorer as a people without um, them and, and other minorities in our midst. Let me echo my, my, my friend Jimmy Scroggins, um, pastor down in, in Florida, in saying that Black Lives Matter is an important thing to say right now because we are seeing in our country the evidence of specific injustices that many of our black brothers and sisters and friends have been telling us about for years. And, and, and by the way, let's not respond by, by saying, oh, well, all lives matter. Uh, of course all lives matter. But I've heard it described this way. Say you're in a group or with a group at a restaurant, and, and the waiter brings the food to, to everybody except for one guy at your table, your friend Bob. And so you say to the waiter, hey, excuse me, Bob deserves food. And somebody at your table corrects you to say, no, 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 all of us deserve food. Well, that's true, but you're missing the point. Bob is sitting there by himself without food. And so we are saying we understand that, 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 uh, that, that many of our black brothers and sisters have perceived for many years um, that the processes, the due processes of justice have, have not worked for them as they have for some others in our country. And by the way, like Jimmy, uh, like Dr. Scroggins says, let's spare each other the quotation of stats right now. You know, if you talk to some black friends, you'll know that they can tell you about their experiences and how some of them can be quite different from, from others in our country. And that's the trigger point. And why is that a trigger? Because I, I think that whole segment is manipulative, and I believe it is uh, unbecoming of a man who is the president of a denomination and seeking to frame a discussion, a, obviously a pretty vital discussion in our country right now that is obviously affecting the church and everything else. So if saying Black Lives Matter is a gospel issue, what do you do with those who are unwilling to say Black Lives Matter? So here's a political issue, seven years old. Um, and J.D. Greer is saying, we have to say it as a gospel issue. But what if you're unwilling to say it? Do you separate from those people? Do you put them under church discipline? Are they denying the gospel? What is he seeking to get at? And if you get his definition of the gospel as Jesus in my place, how is now Black Lives Matter a gospel issue? So I think he gets confused on his use of the term gospel, uh, of how he defines it earlier, how he ends up defining it here. But appealing to it as a gospel issue, I think, ironically enough, gets the subtle heresies, if you remember when he was... Uh, quoting Cardinal Newman, that people, the heretics end up uh, smuggling in uh, the, the, the right or their heresies with the right language. And so I think something like Black Lives Matter in our context does have a politi uh, specific political connotations and does have specific ideologies intertwined with it. And so if J.D. is bringing in the idea of Black Lives Matter under the banner of the gospel, here you have these alien ideologies being smuggled in, just as he says, Cardinal Newman points out, that heretics always do. And so I'm not saying right now that JD's a heretic. 
I'm just saying he's laying the framework of a her- of a hermeneutic for heretics to smuggle these things in and ultimately to deconstruct the gospel. Um, so I think that's one of the trigger points. The other thing is, as he ends up quoting his friend Jimmy Scroggins, he says, Black Lives Matter is important to say right now because we are seeing in our country the evidence, the evidence of specific injustices that many of our black friends have been telling us for years. Um that may or may not be a case, but that's, at the very least, if you take Black Lives Matter and you take Jimmy Scroggins' quote, what we do have is at least the claim that there is a systematic killing and a systematic uh, oppression of the black community. And I'm open to the idea that it's a very real possibility. I'm, I'm under no pretenses that there is zero oppression in the world and that the state and everything else can't be uh, oppressing people. But the question is, is that the case? And according to J.D. Greer, quoting his friend, we are seeing the evidences of that. So if we are seeing the evidence of that, I think one of the things that is vital, going back to even uh, like the Brown case in Ferguson, what does the evidence there say? Does the evidence in that case suggest that his death was part of this systemic problem of oppression onto the black community, or was it an instance of a man attacking a police officer who ended up getting killed? What does the evidence say? So is the Brown case an indication of the evidence of this, or is it evidence to the contrary? How should we understand it? And so if we're going to look at evidence and appeal to these things and say we're going to bring forth evidence, we have to really look at the cases, and we really have to have a real honest debate over the issues. And this is where the empathy can't come in or or it's not that important right here because if we're having a debate over, here's what we're saying happens, there's a systematic oppression of, of black Americans and we need to stop, but what is the evidence of that? So according to JD, we're seeing evidence of that. But then he goes on to say, spare the stats. Well, why? If, if, if we're seeing the evidence of something, don't you think the stats of how it is all being played out is pretty vital and important to the discussion? And that's where I think Sam Harris comes in. So here you have J.D. Greer, president of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, saying, we're seeing evidence of this, but spare me the stats. And I, I'm, there's a certain level where I could agree, you, you have a couple things going on here when you're doing ministry. You have the bigger picture issue of you're addressing the culture, and you have to address this bigger picture thing. Then you're also addressing a specific man across the table from you whose experience has been perhaps contrary to yours, and he's had bad experiences with the police. And let me just, I guess, maybe chime in with a little personal story from the police. Uh, I was arrested in 2011 preaching the gospel. And the cop uh, hit me from behind. He put a shoulder in the small of my back and tried to tackle me and then was lifted me by my belt. And it was, it was really chaotic and all this sort of stuff. And uh, they ended up cuffing me, throwing me in the back of a car, bringing me downtown, all that sort of jazz. And according to uh, the, even the student newspaper, it said that the cop took such a bad angle at him and he didn't even warn the preacher, me, uh, that he was coming. So uh, my testimony is the the cop never gave any warning that he was coming. He never... Uh, approach, he approached me from behind. The student paper uh, from eyewitnesses also says that the cop got me from behind. But if you read the police report, the police told me uh, in the police report says that he identified himself three times with me and that he attempted uh, by putting his hand in the small of my back to escort me away from the crowd, uh, which is contrary to what I believe I experienced and also the that of the eyewitnesses. So I'm under no pretext that all police in America are completely honest and they're doing a good job and an honest job and they're like you and me and they're and some days it has nothing to do with anything other than they're just not good at their job. Um, 
and and so and within that uh, they're like you and me and they want to protect themselves and so they're going to have a temptation to lie especially when they do something wrong and it's against them so so i'm open to, to some of the complaints regarding uh, their experiences with, with the police because um, I've had minimal experiences with the police um, and a lot of them were negative. I've been pulled over so many times. I even got pulled over one time. The cop said, you fit the profile, but you don't have a rental car. Interestingly enough, a year later, I'm driving in a rental car. I was pulled over like six times in that rental car for like ridiculous things where uh, one of the, one time the cop said I didn't give enough space between me and a semi and stuff like that, even though he drove next to me for about 30 seconds before pulling me over. And it's so, so, so I've experienced police in ways that have not always been positive. Obviously, I haven't been shot or killed. But if my hermeneutic was that of these are my oppressor and they're out here to kill me and it's systematic violence, I would imagine that my interaction with them is going to be radically different than my operating assumption that they're kind of for me. And so when I, when they, and even when they pull me over, my operating assumption is that they are ministers of wrath. They have guns. They're there to kill me if necessary. So I get pulled over. All my lights are on, windows open, hands at 10 and 2, and all that sort of stuff. And I don't move. And anytime I do move, I ask them if I can, can I do this? Can I do that? Because uh, my operating assumption is that they're ministers of wrath. I'm not there to play my rights game. I can uh, live another day and uh, discuss my rights. But anyway, so the stats become an important issue in all this discussion because. It's a gospel issue. We're seeing evidence of it. And then he says, spare me the stats. This is just pure rhetorical nonsense from J.D. Greer. And ironically, I listened to a podcast by Sam Harris, the famous atheist Sam Harris. And I believe the name of this particular co- uh, podcast was, Can We Walk Back from the Brink? And so basically, he's sizing up the American situation and says we're not in a good spot. And the thing that's interesting to me is he's willing to work his way through the data. And he's asking, does the data point in the direction that we're currently seeing the streets burning over? And Sam's basic conclusion is no. Um, I'd let you listen to the podcast so you can listen to the stats that he rolls out, the sources that he rolls out. But the thing that's more important to me and us, I think in this context, is what he brings out here. He says this, this isn't just politics and human suffering on display. It's philosophy. It's ideas about truth about what it means to say that something is quote-unquote true. What we are witnessing in our streets and online and in the impossible conversations we're attempting to have in our private lives is a breakdown in epistemology. How does anyone figure out what's going on in the world? What is real? If we can't agree about what is real or likely to be real, we will never agree about how we should live together. And the problem is we're stuck with one another. And this is an important thing because this is where the whole you're white, you're black, you're cis, you're uh, male, you're an effing white male, whatever it is, comes into discussion because what they want to end up saying is you have your beliefs because you're that and we have our beliefs because we're this. And well, if our epistemologies really are that far apart because of our race and our social setting, I don't know, I would just say there's no way to know that we ever arrive at anything being true. Um, because there is no truth. We just have beliefs due to our social context, which if you throw in intersectionality, we never really know where we're at in the level of knowing. Whereas Sam Harris is going to be a bit more of, of a basic enlightenment empiricist, and so I think there's uh, some problems with his epistemology. But one of the things I can appreciate about Sam Harris, opposed to Black Lives Matter, is there's still a world to talk about. Um, even if we disagree exactly how we get there, uh, we're going to agree on 
basically empiricism. Uh, we observe the world around us. One of the ways we know if we're committing adultery, by the looks of our wives or the looks of our husbands. Uh, how did Adam and Eve know what tree not to eat from? Uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, they looked at it, and they saw that it was pleasing to the eye and everything else. So I do think the empiricism is a vital way of us going about knowing the world. And there's even a guy I went to seminary with who's now pretty liberal. His name's uh, Dr. Drew Johnson, and he's at King's College in New York. And he... Um, even in uh, Christianity Today and his anti-conspiracy, he was one of the guys I wanted to bring into my anti-conspiracy, which I never finished a conspiracy uh, series, is he, he basically argues for a strand of empiricism. But if you listen to some of the uh, kind of woke evangelicals, they'll say that kind of even empiricism is kind of the privilege of, of the white man and stuff like that. So it really gets into complete, utter chaos and nonsense. But here you have Sam Harris, who's an atheist trying to work through the issues in a much more honest way than I believe J.D. Greer is. And so I've pulled just a couple quotes from his podcast that I think are vital. So I'm going to uh, finish by reading this. He says, uh, what we're seeing now is a response to that, basically the breakdown of philosophy. Uh, but it's a confused and confusing response. Worst of all, it's a response that is systematically silencing honest conversations and this makes it dangerous. And I believe that the way J.D. Greer was framing the discussion is systematically silencing conversation. Now, obviously, you just don't want to, you know, you need some wisdom uh, in having these conversations. And so it's not just, oh, well, what about, what about, what about, or throwing out the number of whites people have been killed or whatever it is. But you need real, uh, but you need to get into the data and you need to have real conversations if uh, what's going on right now is evidence of a systematic oppression that the BLM claims, that J.D. Greer claims, and yet what does the actual data state? Uh, again, listen to Sam Harris's podcast. But he goes on to say, what should we do next, tomorrow, next week? Obviously, I don't have the answers, but I'm very worried that many of the things we're doing now and seem poised to do will only make our problems worse. And I'm especially worried that it's become so difficult to talk about this. And that, that this is my gripe with J.D. Greer, the way he frames it, is that we can't talk about this. He goes on to say, I'm just trying to have the conversation. I'm just trying to figure these things out in real time with other people. And there is no question that conversation itself has become dangerous. If you care about justice, and you absolutely should, you should care about facts and the ability to discuss them openly. Justice requires contact with reality. It simply isn't the case. It cannot be the case that the most pressing claims on our sense of justice need come from those who claim to be the most offended by conversation itself. I'll tell you the fear of the other uh, that does seem warranted everywhere right now. It's the other who has rendered him or herself incapable of dialogue. It's the other who will not listen to reason, who has no interest in facts, who can't join a conversation that converges on the truth because he knows in advance what the truth must be. We should fear the other who thinks the dogmatism and cognitive bias aren't something to be corrected for because they're the very foundations of his epistemology. We should fear the other who can't distinguish activism from journalism or politics from science or worse, can make the... Uh, can make these distinctions, but refuses to. And we are all capable of becoming this person, if only for minutes or hours at a time. And this is a bug in our operating system, not a feature. We have to continually correct for it. We have to pull back from the brink here. And all we have with which to do that is conversation. And the only way that makes conversation possible is an openness to evidence and arguments, a willingness to update one's view of the world when better reasons are given. And that is an ongoing process, not a place we finally arrive at. Conversation is the only tool we have for making progress. I firmly believe that. But many of the things we most need to talk about seem impossible 
to talk about. So here you have Sam Harris, who I believe is demonstrating far greater wisdom uh, than the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, that what is vitally needed right now, whether you're white, black, and I don't, I really don't care what you are, uh, you, and even if it is listening to Black Lives Matter people, uh, listen and have that conversation. And oftentimes, you know, the, generally speaking, they're the ones who aren't totally looking to have a conversation, uh, but be willing to do that. And the more you're willing to do that, you'll find that people will find it refreshing. And you don't have to be a bully in every conversation. You don't have to be a jerk in every conversation. Open up your dinner table uh, to anybody who's different and have that conversation with them. But I think Sam Harris is headed in the right direction. That, that, that what we need to do is be bold enough to have the conversations and we can't be emotional and just kind of crazy and chaotic about it, uh, but we need to be uh, mature and wise and demonstrate ourselves uh, to be Christians who are faithful to the truth, who love justice, and because we love justice, we're willing to look at the evidence, no matter where it leads us. And if that means we have to overturn certain statutes of the police, amen, let's do it. Um, but let us be driven by actual data and evidence not just our emotional experiences. We're in a culture where many men and women think that they are the opposite of what they are. So we're not in very clear thinking times. We're in very confusing times. And as Christians, uh, we need to be mature. We need to be reasonable. We need to be sustained. And we can't be blown about by every wind and doctrine coming down the way. And we can't be controlled by those who are being blown about either. So that's this episode of the Campus Preacher Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations, feel free to reach out to me, Keith at CampusPreacher.com, Campus Evangel on the Twitter, uh, Campus Preacher on Instagram, and Keith Darrell on Facebook. Feel free to reach out. Lord bless you. Keep you in touch next week. He runs on his way, there's no time to be going slow Hurry, take what you've got, do with it what you can Cause the good God in heaven needs us, so we're in the land Some seed fell by the wayside, some of it fell among thorns